Welcome to Deal Volume, McKinsey's podcast on all things private markets. I'm Brian Vickery, your host and a partner at McKinsey & Company. In this series, we cover the best of our research and insights and bring you thought-provoking conversations featuring industry experts, insiders, and thought leaders. Whether you're a seasoned pro or a newcomer to the space, we welcome you to join us in this ongoing exploration of the private capital industry. Thanks for tuning into today's episode, and let's jump right in. Welcome to the podcast. I'm joined today by McKinsey's global heads of our private equity and principal investor practice, David Quigley, who leads our efforts in North America, Alejandro Beltran and De Miguel, who leads in Europe, and Gary Pinshaw, who leads our team in APEC. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. In today's show, we plan to highlight this year's publication of the McKinsey Global Private Markets Report, which we have just released. Every year, we publish this report as a summary of fundraising, deal-making, and performance in the prior year. We often reflect on what the data says alongside our experience in serving clients in the space. I'll get us started by offering a dozen reflections of my own on the report and give listeners a brief synthesis of everything that we've written this year. And then I'll invite Gary, David, and Alejandro into the conversation to offer their thoughts from what they're seeing on the ground. To have a dozen reflections here to get us going on the private market support for 2023. First and foremost, 2021 created a really difficult benchmarking year. What we saw in in deal activity, fundraising, growth and dry powder, every metric that we celebrate every year and every year we talk about growth upon growth upon growth generally in this report, um, 2021 was truly extraordinary. And so we talk about changes in this year, it's off of a really high benchmark. 2022 was a very different year and a year of two halves. The first half of the year, deal making continued almost apace and looked a lot like it looked in the frenzy of 2021. And as we hit summer and the availability of debt, the price of debt and the dislocation in asset prices between buyer and seller created real consternation. We saw deal volume fall rapidly across sectors. And so when we look at the annual totals, we see a decline off of that total, that very high total reached in 2021. But when we look at the halves, we see a first half that looks really robust and a second half that looks really quiet. So it's a year of two very different halves. Reflection three is that in 2022, the denominator effect was real for the first time, probably since the GFC. We had a quick blip where deal volume fell and asset prices dislocated in 2020, but it happened so quickly that it didn't have a long-term effect on fundraising. What's happened this year, whereas in years past, we've talked over and over again about the gap between LPs' targets for where they want to be with their private markets portfolios and where they actually are with their portfolios. And as they chased a growing market and constantly putting more and more capital to work, the declining valuation in public markets this year meant that private market valuations for many closed that gap to target and for some actually put them ahead of target. What that meant for LPs is point four here, which is they've largely stayed the course. Many have learned from the sins of the GFC where we put the most capital we had ever put to work right at the peak. And then when the decline happened, many LPs held off on commitments altogether. And at the extreme, many sold into the secondaries market and LPs abandoned the space. And what turned out to be reasonably good vintage years following the GFC and many missed out and permanently impaired their portfolios, at least as far as we can tell thus far, it seems to be different this time. If you talk to folks that are inside of the secondary space, they'll say, They had more conversations with LPs this year than they have in years past about thinking about selling portfolios or inquiring about selling portfolios. But the actual deal volume of things that transacted in the secondary space um, was lower than it was last year. So LPs have not run for the hills 
and private equity. And then fundraising, and it's guessed in my fifth point here, fundraising fell year over year, but it didn't decline dramatically. And for large funds and established funds and those managing the largest funds, fundraising actually grew. And there's a bit of geographic dispersion in the data, like fundraising in North America grew overall, while in other regions it fell. But overall, LPs stayed the course. And when they did invest, they invested with managers that they had invested with before, right? And so large managers, funds raising large funds. We've talked about, in years past, we've talked about the lack of consolidation in the space. So everyone wants to talk about the largest managers getting bigger, which is true, except that the whole industry is getting bigger at roughly the same pace. And so the industry structure really hasn't changed over the last dozen years or so. 2022 was a little bit different. The concentration in fundraising to the largest managers and the largest funds was more substantial than it has been in a very long time. So one year in concentration, we wouldn't go as far as to say that we've seen consolidation this year, but we certainly see a favoring of larger managers in a difficult market. To get to point six, and as we get into asset class specific takeaways, starting with private equity, this was the first year that private equity lost money since 2008. Right? So we've had a very long period of positive returns through different market environments, but largely an expansionary growth market has been a tailwind for private equity in 2022 through September, we're down 9%. Of course, that 9% is meaningfully better than what was experienced in public markets, which is a combination. We don't know how to weight the variables of more resilient companies with better governance, in some cases valued and measured against fundamentals that really haven't changed. And there's also a lag in reporting, which of course we acknowledge and we all know. The tech sector played a big influence on returns, both in public markets and in private markets. And we look at tech-oriented funds, under tech-oriented buyout funds, underperformed other buyout funds. Venture capital, which is tech-heavy, underperformed buyout funds. So we know that those that are invested in tech suffered even more than the average of being down 9% would indicate. Point seven, we talk about the industry has more and more and more dry powder to be put to work. And that it continued to be true in 2022. What we pay attention to is the dry powder inventory, which we measure as the amount of dry powder that could, how many times could it buy the market? So how much capital is available relative to the number of deals that are being done? And with deal volume falling sharply last year and fundraising falling by not nearly the same degree, dry powder inventory actually spiked quite a bit. We now see it the highest ratio we've seen since 2013. What that means is that as, unless deal volume resumes as sharply as it did in 2021, GPs are sitting on a lot of cash relative to the assets they're able to buy. So we ought to see willing buyers when markets resume and open back up. Thinking about real estate, similar trends that we see overall and within private equity. So fundraising substantially down 23% in closed-end vehicles. That fundraising, just like in private equity, shifted into, it was concentrated among larger names. And deal volume globally in real estate fell every quarter throughout the year, quarter over quarter. And we also saw cap rates expand across every major sector, including an industrial and multifamily, which had been sectors in favor for several years. So reversing a very long-term trend that had been a tailwind for the space and putting downward pressure on valuation. I think probably most interestingly, when we look at the fundamentals of real estate and particularly in the office sector, which has been one in focus for several years now with the shift to hybrid work, the data is showing a flight to quality among office tenants. So in a world where employers need less space for the employees, they're taking higher quality space that allows them to attract employees to their companies and attract those employees back into the office. We're starting to see that show up in the data. Point nine is private debt's meant to perform well when equity doesn't, and it has. It's performed well again this year. And more importantly, for a longer term perspective, the fundraising into the space continues to grow several consecutive years 
of growth of fundraising as this asset class becomes more and more important. And in a year where banks pull, continue to pull back from the leveraged loan market, private debt has filled that void and continues to do so more and more. That I think private debt several years ago was funding the middle market, and we now see it expanding up into some of the larger deals that transact and what seems to be a, a continuation of a very long-term and strong trend here. Infrastructure and natural resources had a good year relative to other asset classes, particularly natural resources backed by higher prices on commodities. Um, so actually the highest returning among our private market sectors was natural resources with that tailwind. And fundraising in the space continues to grow. So we saw five funds of more than $10 billion raised just in the last year, which was a new record. Um, LPs continue to pour money into infrastructure, natural resources space with a really wide variety in what's in there. And we look underneath, we now see funds that are that have more equity and equity-like positions. And so the risk return profile of what is considered an infrastructure deal has changed. And of course, a lot of the dollars that are going into sustainability and sustainability-oriented, renewables-oriented strategies are showing up in infrastructure and natural resources. Um, so a good year for that space. Last two points I'd make before we jump into the conversation. Um, ESG, we write about it every year. We think it matters. We think it matters a lot. And we know it matters to LPs. And we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time with Alejandro talking about that. Um, again, this year saw continued growth and importance. Just a couple data points. ESG-focused fundraising raised $24 billion just through the first half alone, which is on pace to, to be a new record. And then sustainability deal volume, which cuts across both ESG funds as well as traditional funds, by our measures, up 11% year over year, where we talked about the substantial fall across other types of deals. So a lot of interest in the space, that interest continues. Um, we'll spend some time talking about that. And then lastly, on DEI, we see some progress, but certainly think there's a lot more work to be done here. When you think about diversity metrics, private market firms compare favorably with corporate America on some, although ethnic diversity is not yet broad-based across firms. And then we say ethnic, racial, and gender representation remains imbalanced in senior positions and investing roles. What that data suggests is that firms are broadly continue to miss talent opportunities across the spectrum. We think the, the industry is moving in the right direction. We think it can move a lot faster. Well, I'll offer that as a good summary. Gentlemen, thanks for joining. Welcome to the conversation. I think I'll start by posing a question to the group. I'd love to get each of your reflections on where we are. The question I'd say is, what are you seeing in your day-to-day -day interactions with your clients that might be different than what we've published in the report or might be different than what the data is saying? Maybe Alejandro, I'll start with you. Thank you, Brian. If I have to share what I'm seeing right now, I don't know whether it is that much different from what you share, but I will probably highlight three things. First, even though there is a still positive mood and outlook on what the future could be for alternative investing, given many of the trends that you just shared, my sense is taking longer than expected. When you talk to funds, uh, you know, some were saying that probably this first quarter, the debt markets will be open up, there will be more deals, uh, the multiples will go down. So you actually see that this is taking a little bit longer than expected. Again, the midterm, long-term view is still positive, but there is a little bit of uncertainty within the industry about how long would it take and even seeing what's going on every week and all the uncertainty that we are seeing, it's probably taking a little bit longer. The second thing, it's hard to talk about the overall view of the industry. There are many different realities here. What I mean along a few axes, the first one, it's actually different when you talk to a fund that they have almost invested all their funds in there. The mood is different from those that got a lot of potential investment. 
is actually more positive for the second than for the first ones. There is a big difference across the best performers and the worst performers. And this is something that you mentioned, this consolidation is really happening. We are serving a few mid-sized funds trying to raise money with not probably the best track record. It's becoming very hard for these guys. While, you know, this top performer is not that difficult, as you said, bigger and probably fewer funds, but there's a clear difference between performance, uh, what we see in the market. And third, asset class, as you said, is completely different. I mean, Europe, that is less developed, for instance, in VC and growth. If you really look at, obviously, the Asian market, but even the North American market, it's growing and there is more appetite. There is more money coming into these asset classes. And there is a big high appetite for things that you said, infrastructure, obviously here, the energy prices, supply chain disruptions here. There is a lot of appetite for infra investing, even private credit, as banks are reducing their exposure of their balance sheets to corporate sector. It's growing very nicely. Liquidity solutions, as you said before, I think that there is more secondaries and there is a bigger pipeline and deal flow in there and obviously impact investing. So completely different realities, different geographies, but especially in different asset classes. So longer than expected, many different realities that we face. And third, there are probably more focus on portfolio work and these type of assets that we were discussing. Let me follow up with one thing that you mentioned right at the end there, talking about the importance of portfolio value creation and how we've seen more concentration there. Could you just talk a little bit about what you're seeing our clients do in the current moment? More and more... We see a much higher focus on this portfolio work and how do they improve the performance during the holding period. You see many funds that traditionally did not have a strong operating partner groups, developing them, setting them up. You see a much more active management of GPs of their portfolio companies. And we see a bunch of completely different things like DNA, sustainability, cost side, even resilience. It's also true when we did a research a few years ago that clearly the key return differentiator was what you do with the asset during the holding period. And more and more, we see more focus, more active management of the assets. This is clearly one thing that we are helping our clients with now. Gary, what reflections from your work? Here across in Asia, and I think firstly, um, Asia is now the second biggest private markets region in the world. So I think it's just important to highlight that at 2.5 trillion, surpassing the 2.3 trillion of Europe. So the time for Asia is certainly um, here. And if we look within Asia, um, venture capital and growth is actually the largest in the world and even larger than North America. And against, as you outlined, a tougher and slowdown in both the number of deals, fundraising, etc. I think on the ground here, what we've seen is a lot of excitement and activity around infrastructure and then ESG and energy transition, which would include a focus of private equity and venture capital. And actually, I think the report um, demonstrates that ESG-directed funds are now have surpassed $100 billion of assets under management. And across the board with infrastructure and the energy transition, we are seeing a lot of investments happening um, from brown to green. And this would include moving from traditional fossil fuel businesses to more environmentally friendly ones, including things like um, refineries retransformed into, for example, ethanol plants. We also excitingly see in um, green business building, 
So investors are taking the lead and helping incubate, grow, and expand new businesses that are environmentally friendly at the core. And likewise, we are seeing enabling technologies, and this could be from emissions um, technology, investing in, in assets like that, and also into training platforms. And then with some supply chain challenges, both here and across the world, as well as within the energy transition, we are seeing supply chain and decarbonization efforts and a lot of investments taking place there. And this includes around various critical components of the supply chain taking place. So in a nutshell, Asia, as we know, is a whole number set of countries, some at developing stage, some at more developed. But we are seeing these pockets of real and significant investment right now and do believe this is here with us for at least the next decade or two. Yeah, really interesting. Certainly when we look at, for my seat in North America, looking at the data in Asia, it's just a different private market landscape than what we see here in North America and a lot more oriented toward growth and venture and building for the future. As I've talked to our colleagues about it, the investment dollars going towards building toward the future versus harvesting and fixing what exists today. So really interesting reflection. David, what are your thoughts? Up to the point that we had the banking issues, it felt quite like a new dawn. We'd started to see in late January, the beginning of new processes. And I'd seen that grow throughout February with quite a lot of focus across aerospace and defense, healthcare, life sciences, consumer, and certain parts of financial services, particularly payments, where we'd actually seen quite a lot of interest. So actually, we saw quite a pickup. As you noted, Brian, the market had been down both in terms of processes, but also in terms of number of participants in each process. And we started to see both of those pick back up. I think in the moment, we're all trying to get our head around what the banking issues have meant and will mean particularly for ongoing interest rates and what that will mean for availability of debt. I certainly agree with the point that we're going to see more private credit, although it does not yet explain enough of coverage of debt to solve the problem on its own. I think it'll continue to grow into that. Separately, raising, it's been a tough year in terms of how it's felt. In some ways, when we look at the numbers, it feels like it's tougher than the numbers would show. And I think part of that is just the tonality has shifted between LPs and GPs. And therefore, for many GPs, this has felt like a tough round, even if we see, when we look at the data, relatively good success, particularly for larger funds based in North America. One of the questions that I'm getting most often are the influence of what's going on in banking in the private market sector. And it's just, it's really hard to know right now where we sit, but it's interesting to reflect on the other thing I'm being asked is when does deal volume resume? And how robustly does deal volume resume, right? And so your interplay of those two things to say, look, we're starting to see green shoots and we were starting to see green shoots. I know from my own work, you're seeing more inbounds from our clients and more inquiries and more work that they're doing on assets. And so you're starting to feel all of that pick up. So good to know. One thing I've not seen is processes that were underway be halted as a result of what's happened with banking. And I had my eye pretty closely on that. So actually processes are continuing to move forward. And I think people are weighing what is occurring carefully. Maybe I'll come back to you, Gary, and ask you a specific question. As we've looked at the data and you look over several years, really fundraising across Asia broadly, across private markets has fallen for several years in a row now, and particularly fallen in China. Sitting here in North America, be interested in your reflections on how should global investors be thinking about the opportunities to put money to work in Asia? And what's the story that those global numbers looking at fundraising may be missing? Yes. 
Brian, you spot on fundraising has actually been in decline since 2017, where we peaked at close on $300 billion in that year. And now we're down to just over $100 billion in 2022. I think it must be looked at relative to the amount of dry powder there is. And that had three times in six to seven years. So a massive buildup in the amount of dry powder or committed capital that was ready to be deployed. So since then, and especially as you call out China, and that has been the reason for the slowdown in fundraising. If you actually take China out of it, it's actually been flat to positive in many other parts of Asia. And for China, it's just been this focus. I'd say there's three key reasons. One is this focus on deploying this vast stockpile of capital. Two, in 2018, we saw China regulators limiting non-financial entities from borrowing capital to invest in PE. And then the third is around the unfortunate ramifications of COVID-19, not even not just on human lives and livelihoods, but also on the lockdowns and the inability to do roadshows on fundraising. So yes, fundraising is down, but still to date. So therefore, there is you know, sufficient capital and would say that those opportunities are there and with valuations becoming more in line with what has been, I'd say, the five to 10-year trends. We've seen basically its decrease here in Asia from close on 14, 15 entry multiples to 11 or 12. So with that moderating those entry multiples, we do think there's going to be substantially more deals, at least substantially more than 2022 going forward. Yeah, really interesting to hear, obviously, from my seat far away. We see the data, but interesting to hear the perspective from on the ground and understand the green shoots that you talked about before as being real opportunities to put capital to work in in a region that at the highest level seems like it's been challenged. It sounds like we're now in a position where there may be real opportunities to come from that. So it is bifurcated. And you made the point earlier how the larger funds are disproportionately winning on fundraising. I think we've seen it here. And we are seeing what many years ago, I remember 10 years ago, we'd say a mega fund was above a billion dollars. Now we've seen it plus $10 billion. Yeah, really interesting. If I could switch topics, Alejandro, I'd love to get your perspective on something. This past year, I mentioned at this at the end of my monologue to start here, that this was another strong year for ESG and private markets. We're seeing as much money as we've ever seen going into dedicated strategies and more money from traditional vehicles that are being oriented towards ESG type investments or investments you might consider to be ESG friendly. That momentum in ESG, really, I think the genesis comes from Europe. It's always been strongest in Europe. I'm just curious with your seat on the ground, like how do the practitioners that you interact with think about ESG and private markets and what might the rest of the world learn from the European ESG experience thus far? Thank you, Brian. And as you said before, even if you look at the sustainability related deals increased by 11% to nearly 200 billion last year, that is a record there. Still BC, by the way, is 40% of this volume. So it's an important thing. I would say a few things here. First, obviously, this ESG trend is not something new, has been here for a while, but it's accelerated. Clearly, there are a few things happening in the macroeconomic context and the conditions. You see the higher energy prices. You see the geopolitical conflicts that we've got. Clearly, this means that we need alternative energy sources and we need a much more energy independence. And this will come with a lot of investment there. 
Obviously, even the government policies are helping. It's clear what you've got in the U.S., this Inflation Reduction Act, but also Europe is pouring money into transforming and doing the green transition of many industries. This is clearly, if something going to accelerate, the fundraising there, but also the deal volume. And it is clear, and again, has started in Europe earlier, probably when you look at the GPs, and most of the GPs are already incorporating this into their corporate policies, operating procedures, and even investment decisions. From the LP side as well, you see that they are taking this seriously when it comes to capital allocation processes. And it's harder for funds to raise this money. We do not comply with these ESG metrics. What I feel that is even more interesting is not the trends, not clearly the attention of GPs and LPs, but the link that we highlight in the report between the ESG and financial performance. We tend to believe that there is no link between both, but there is clear correlation between the ESG and financial performance. More and more what we see in many funds, they may not be ESG purely related, but there is more focus on value creation and exit planning. Clearly, ESG is becoming, and we see in a lot of work we do for our clients, how ESG could become a driver of performance. It could be top line or new businesses, new pricing, new products. It could be cost side. It could be resilience, as we say, supply chain and availability of energy. So we see this more and more, and the appetite is there. So if something, this thing is going to grow, we see this. A lot of things that are happening is not just the buyout. If you really see this uh, green growth or the business building, more and more we see big companies trying to get into a different ecosystem and trying to get into what is a green transition of their businesses, and they need capital. Again, it may be capital equity, it may be credit, but clearly this is also creating a big opportunities in the industry to really support our clients' transition throughout this time. Thank you. I'm personally fascinated and inspired by the work that some of our colleagues are doing where we've taken the approach that is not just how do I get to net zero or what's my check the box ESG strategy, but I love the work that we're doing that says actually like how do you make money doing this? Like what are the green business opportunities you could do? How can we make money on decarbonization? Like I think putting that twist on it is just going to accelerate the movement in the space. So really interesting to hear your reflections. Okay, let's finish here with a forward-looking question. I'll leave the last word with you, David. If we could put the banking sector issues aside, which I know is a difficult task in the current environment, but what are you spending the most time talking to clients about today? And what do you think that means for private equity in 2023? Look, if we look back to this industry, and the metric that I like is dollars raised each year rather than AUM. But look back over the course of the last decade, it tripled. And my first point is I see that continuing. And you can see that in buyout, you'll see it in growth equity. VC may take a moment, but I think you'll see it across these asset classes. The electricity, the long-term trend here will increase. More near-term, I do think we are on a path to a return to a more normal transactions market. Certainly, buyouts are up from the floor. I see a lot more activity in carve-out and a lot more globally in take private as well. And I think they'll be important themes for the year as we look forward. That means particularly carve-out is a more complex transaction type. So I think we'll see more focus on completing those carve-outs and getting them stood up. I think everyone is expecting some adjustment on asset prices, particularly as we all accommodate 
what would appear to be a longer, higher interest rate environment. But there's a real sense that the deal-making volume has to return. In a way, this industry functions very much on turnover of assets. And I think to the extent, Brian, that there will be some longer holds here, I think we're seeing that offset by more focus on alpha generation in the portfolio by managers. That, I think, is an equally important point. That we may see some longer holds out of this period. I don't know yet that we can call the numbers on overall returns. The market that I see that is going to be the longest to come back, but I think when it comes back, it'll come back fast, is software-based investing. Yeah, and certainly one that's been in favor for a long time before the past couple of years, right? So makes sense. All right, well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully our listeners learned a little bit about what we're seeing on the ground. For those interested in reading the full McKinsey Global Private Markets Report, it's available now on our website, mckinsey.com. Looking forward to the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Deal Volume with me, Brian Vickery. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review or rating and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform to be notified about our upcoming episodes. Join us next month as we continue to explore the dynamic world of private markets. Until then, you can find our most recent insights on our website, www.mckinsey.com. <laughs>